Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network Food Channel. Among the more appealing European pastimes is whiling the day away in a Parisian cafe, watching the world go by, enjoying a glass of wine or a cup of coffee. But if you've ever ventured inside the cafe, you may have found the regimen of bottles standing to attention behind that zinc bar somewhat bewildering. Today's guest, however, is here to unravel all of that mystery for us. Fans of his book and popular website know David Leibowitz as one of the more charming and reliable guides to the world of French food. But in his latest book, Drinking French, David takes us into the fascinating world of French beverages and on several different journeys. We move through the day from morning coffee to after dinner liqueurs, but we also move all over France. And all along the way, we meet brewers, vintners, distillers, infusers, and a host of professional mixologists. There can be no better guide to this intriguing landscape than David Leibowitz, and I am so delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network. David, bienvenue. Ah, merci beaucoup, c'est gentil. Before we dive into the book, um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your development as a food writer, because your path is somewhat different from many of our more academic authors. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I got a D plus in high school English, so <laughs> I might be the wrong person to ask about that. Um, but I was a pastry chef for many years, and then I decided to write a book for home cooks. And all of a sudden, I had to change my whole orientation and think, how does a home cook think? How does a home baker think? Rather than, you know, if you're a professional baker, you hand someone a, a list of ingredients, they know how to put it together. So I had to learn that language of explaining things to people, but without being overly, you know, nobody wants a four-page brownie recipe. Um, (laughs) So I learned to, you know, be concise, to edit, which is a big part of writing. Um, And having a blog really helped because I was writing all the time. And I started that in 1999. Um, So, you know, you're writing a story three times a week and you're getting immediate feedback um, so, which is really great training to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I don't recommend it to anybody else, but <laughs> <laughs> or start now and yeah. <laughs> but that was a good time to start a blog, wasn't it? Um, because it was relatively new uh, sort of format. Well, it was actually completely new. I mean, I didn't. Even, mm-hmm. Nobody knew what a blog was. I think mm. they were invented in that year, but you know, I was just writing. I was just putting things on my website, um, mm-hmm. and it was such a different atmosphere. Um, I didn't know anybody else who was doing what I was doing. Um, And then I found out about four or five years later, a friend of mine wrote to me and she goes, oh, did you see these people? They're funny or they're interesting. And so there was like three food bloggers. And and it's funny if you think about it now, but literally there was like three or four people. And then there was like seven. (laughs) And now they're like seven million. (laughs) There are, but it was, you know, it was so interesting then because nobody had an agenda um, except to write about what they were cooking and eating and tasting and seeing. Mm -hmm. So it was really raw and it was fun Mm -hmm. because I was like, all of a sudden now you'd see somebody eating lunch in Vietnam 
and you see like a plate of, you know, Savoir magazine always did a really good job of capturing that um, real authenticness of food. But all of a sudden you could see like Korean people cooking and eating <laughs> and like, and they were nice and you could, you know, I, we talk and it was like, Oh wow. And so I became that person um, mm-hmm. in France, which you know, right. I wasn't the first, you know, there was other people too. I don't want to take credit for everything, but um, you know, I be, sort of became one of the voices in Paris. Mm-hmm. And that led to a number of wonderful books. Uh, yeah, well, I started, you know, my blog came out when my first book came out called Room for Dessert. Mm-hmm. And um, I often say this, you know, from the be careful what you wish for category, um, I thought, well, if I, I should have a website so people who have questions about the recipes <laughs> can get in touch with me. I know you're laughing, but I was like serious about it in those days. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is this will be great. I'll get like emails from people and they'll want help. So um but you know, on the other hand, it does make you think about what you're writing, and you know, I always tell people writing is like baking. You're giving people stories, or you're giving mm-hmm. people recipes. So they went hand in hand, and that's how I sort of transitioned to become a writer and a baker. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, uh, something of a mixologist, I think, um, with drinking French. What was the inspiration to shift from food? I mean, you've written about ice cream, you've written mm-hmm. about classic French cuisine. What made you move towards the the beverage side of the equation? Uh, well, a couple of things. One is that I was going started going to bars again because Paris had this flourishing bar scene, and I had really lost that whole cocktail thing in my. I was living. I'd lived in San Francisco for thirty years or so. And we used to go out for cocktails and so forth. And I lost that when I moved to Paris because it was not a good city for cocktails. Um, mm-hmm. It was a terrible city for cocktails and in those days. And then all of a sudden these bars started opening and I started going and I was like, oh, 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 what's this? A Manhattan. <laughs> oh, what, you know, and they were using all these French spirits. And I was like, oh. Um, and the other thing was I started watching them work and um, – you know, I looked at the people behind the bar as goddesses and gods. Um, in a way. I just, I was like so wowed by them. Like people are wowed by these celebrity chefs, but they were there. They were like in front of me, and they were mixing drinks. But I realized they were doing what I do: is they were mixing ingredients um, to make something else. But it, you could take like all those ingredients came together like a batch of brownies. It's eggs and chocolate and sugar and butter. Um, whereas, like, you know, Manhattan is, you know, whiskey and vermouth and bitters. You can taste all those things in it, um, but they're like perfect balance. Mm. Um, you know, when you have a Caesar salad where you can't taste any one ingredient over the other, they mm-hmm. all come together. It's like, wow, these people are amazing. And I was like, I want to do that. So, how is, But how is a bar different from a cafe? Maybe because you begin the book with a really the one of the more beautiful pieces of, mm-hmm. of writing about restaurants or cafes I've, I've come across recently, sort of uh, the opening of a French cafe in the morning. Um, mm-hmm. How is how is a cafe different from a bar in France? Well, the first thing is the nomenclature in French mm-hmm. is different. Like at a cafe, you say au bar, where if you're going to drink at the bar. Uh-huh. Um, and so that's a sort of a language difference. Um, you could say bar a, co- a cocktail for a cocktail mm. bar. Um, so um, a cafe is more of a, um, you know, it has tables, there's coffees, there's other kinds of drinks, you know, afternoon drinks. 
They might serve food. They usually have lunch, sometimes dinner. Uh, people go for breakfast. Cocktail bars, I don't. I think are empty at breakfast time in Paris. I haven't, I haven't been to one <laughs> early, but I'm assuming most most of them. I think open at six o'clock or something. I see. Um, but one in, in, interesting nomenclature thing was in the book. You know, in French, you say barman for the person behind the bar, whether they're at a cafe or at a cocktail bar. And I didn't know how to refer to women. So mm. I asked some of the women bartenders in Paris, I was like, well, how do you, and even in America, I was like, how do you like to be referred? And in America, you can say bartender, but in French, it, there's no there's no word uh-huh. yet. So that was one of my um, interesting things that I, you know, hmm. but, butted up against in the book. So I said, barman or woman. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and did you get, did it, did you get any sort of feminist bartenders, um, outraged by this in France or did they just no. kind of carry on with it? Oh no, they were, I mean, women were super, I, you know, I asked them and they were like, they don't, they didn't have an answer. Cause you know, the language doesn't, you know, French, French, it also has masculine and feminine terms. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you would say the tart with sacrem with her cream. Because mm-hmm. tart is a feminine word, la, la tarte. So, you know, it's not sexist per se. And, you know, I did my best not to be sexist in the book. I, you know, featured a lot of women. Uh, my editor was a woman. The designer was a woman. The production editor was a woman. Oh, wow. you know, the publicist, you know, they're all women. Everyone in my publisher was a woman, um, except for me. Uh, <laughs> which is great because I spent my whole life working with women and for women and alongside women. So I have Perfect. no, you know... I I have absolutely know, you know, one woman I featured in the book, I met her because I was at a, a culinary demonstration in Paris. And the first thing she had brought one of her bartenders with her. And the first question the moderator asked was, so you brought a woman with you. Is this, are you trying to make a political statement? Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people are a little behind. Um, and she just looked at him. She goes, no, I brought the person who was the most competent. And I oh, said, she nice. needs to be in my book. So, nice. <laughs> so I love that. I mean, it was just a perfect way to handle it. Um, and then there was a few other sexist comments that. Oh, my um, goodness. Well, you know, so not everybody's there yet. Um, right. You know, it's, and there's also some cultural differences, too, that need to be addressed. And they are. Mm-hmm. It's just you know. well, the the book is filled with yeah. with fascinating personalities and, and um, even each personality is sort of creating a unique beverage. I, I loved the bits about the, um, the beer makers um, yeah. who just seem very innovative. And I don't think, uh, I don't think people outside France think of France as a big beer country. Well, it's, um, you know, beer is a very popular aperitif now in France. I mean, uh-huh. probably more people drink beer than wine during Ooh. aperitif hour. Well, it's cheaper. Goodness um, me. <laughs> especially in Paris. Um, it's uh-huh. cheaper. Um and, you know, you can sip it longer. A glass of wine doesn't, you know, you, you can drink it rather quickly, whereas one of those mm-hmm. giant beers, you know, I, used, I sometimes I walk by these cafes in the afternoon or early evening, and I see these people drinking these, you know, quart beers. Like, Ooh, how yeah. do they do that? Uh-huh. And it's like... Um, and is there, a, is there a thriving beer making, a sort of craft beer scene um, it's been moving. Somebody told me that there's a craft beer brewery opening every day in France, Heavens. which is very interesting. Um, the, the interesting thing about making beer, like France, it's very difficult to start a new business um, in certain, like distilling. It's uh-huh. imp- like 
the guy and the people in the book that the brothers who opened the distillery in Paris, I think it took them five or six years to get their rights to do that. Whereas um, Thomas from Deck and Donahue, he goes, no, it was super easy because mm. we're not, we're not, there's no fire. I was like, yeah, okay. So he's like, it's mm. no problem. Very easy. He goes, anyone what can does, do it. What does there's no fire mean? Well, you know, when you're distilling, there's a flame because oh, you're heating up the okay. still. And uh-huh. for obvious reasons, they don't like fires in France because, you know, in Paris, because yeah. it's a compact city and, mm-hmm. you know, the whole city, you know, it gets, you know, they don't want a I fire see. sweeping across the city. No, no, for sure. For yeah. Sure so that's understandable. Um, but uh-huh. beer is very interesting. Like I don't drink a lot of beer. I only, my joke is I only drink it if I'm on the beach in Mexico. Uh, like I only drink it if I'm moving house. Like, like yeah. that is oh, that's the only time I drink beer is if I'm moving from one place to another. Um, and you know, when we finish unloading the truck, I have a beer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I had a beer the other day. I made cabbage. You know, we're uh, we're inside. It's winter, and I made cabbage soup, and I had oh, a deck and Donahue beer. Um, uh-huh. It was actually a kvass. Um, it was ah. delicious, and kvass is lower alcohol, but. Mm-hmm. It's made from old bread ends. They ferment them. It's a Russian mm-hmm. yeah. uh, style of, of, it's not beer. It's another, it's a fermented beverage. And it was delicious. I was like, I love this. Yeah, fantastic. So. What about some other drinks? I mean, you, this is an exhaustive list, but um, each of the, many, many of the cocktails you put in has, has a lovely kind of story behind it. And um, for people who are, you know, visiting Paris for the first time, I think they quickly learn uh, what a kir is. But mm-hmm. that's, there's a lovely story behind it. I wonder if you would share it with us. Well, the kir is a really interesting um, drink. It's almost cult. I mean, people are like, I love kir. You know, Americans will say, I love kir. And it's a drink that everybody knows about. Um, what they don't know is maybe the history Mm-hmm. Um, and there are several different versions of the history. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like the current you know political situation where they go, well, it's an alternative truth. So there's a lot of alternative truths. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple, one of the stories goes that they had a lot of this wine called Aligote that was produced in Burgundy, and it's sort of a very acidic wine. It's not considered fine wine. And they're like, how can we sell it? And like, let's put creme de cassis in it. Mm-hmm. And we'll sell it that way. Um, and another story, which is probably the truer one, is that there was a priest who became, um, he was in the res- French resistance. And after World War II, he became um, militant about getting people to drink creme de cassis because it was a product of the region and getting uh-huh. the economy going. Uh-huh. And they named the drink after him. His name was Felix Kier. Oh, I see. Okay. So and, and so there's a Kier and then there's a Kier Royale. Right. right. And the Kier used to be called a, a Blanc Cassis, um, mm. which is like a white wine and uh, black currant. Mm-hmm. So the Kier Royale, of course, has champagne in it, um, which is also a funny French paradox because a lot of French people are like, oh, you should never defile wine. Do not right. put ice in it. Like you're pouring fruit syrup in it, <laughs> <laughs> and you're this, pouring it in champagne. <laughs> but I don't like super dry wine, and so I do mm. keep a bottle of creme de cassis. And if I if I if it's way too acidic for me, I do I do make mm. it here. And it's it's a it's a fantastic drink that kind of takes you from afternoon to evening very effortlessly. I think. Yeah, it's very drinkable and it's not yeah. challenging. It's just it's a great drink. Um, you know, it's, it's one of those perfect things that doesn't need to be 
messed with or right. updated or anything. No, it's a classic. But some of the other bottles behind the bar are challenging. Yeah. Um, and I think everybody is is kind of baffled by the by the amount of bottles and they all have beautiful labels and mm-hmm. they you you make a case for us that each of them has a fascinating history and mm-hmm. I wonder if we could go through a few of them that might not be uh, immediately uh, sort of known to our to our listeners for example pastis mm-hmm. um, which always seems to be kind of the butt of jokes in French television <laughs> um, things mm-hmm. what, what is pastis and how do you consume it uh, well it's an anise based liqueur. Um, but actually, what makes pastis is licorice. Licorice ah. has to be in pastis. Um, it is was it in, licorice root or is it? I think it's the root. Uh-huh. Um, but it was um, invented around the time when absinthe was banned. And they were mm, looking Why for was a, absinthe banned? Well, there's a couple of alternative truths about that. Oh, there you example. go. <laughs> One of them is that um, absinthe was making people crazy, mm-hmm. um, which was partially true because a lot of cheap absinths were out there that had dangerous chemicals in them, toxic Ooh. chemicals, and people were getting sick. Um, the other alternative truth is that winemakers were having, there was a wine blight at the time and the price of wine was going up and people um, started drinking absinthe and they wanted that to stop. So absinthe became illegal. Mm. And then they started making, so pastis came about. Um, and what happened was, and I'll, I'll keep this on the brief side, um, but everything in France is regional. Like every region has an aperitif that's different, that uses products from their region or whatever. Um, and pastis was um, in, made in Marseille in the south of France. Um, during that same period, French people got their first vacations. Mm. A lot of people think the French are always on vacation, but that wasn't something that started until I think the 1930s. Um, That's comparatively late, isn't it? It is, but you know they worked seven days a week, and everybody went to Marseille, and then they came home, you know, back to the north, and they were like, "We want pastis, we want pastis." So all these regional aperitifs died um, or went away, and then everybody started drinking pastis. So it's very popular in France now, and it's iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you consume it? Uh, usually, well, with water, always it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You, you don't want to drink it straight. Um, but sometimes people put mint syrup in it, or pomegranate syrup. Pomegranate syrup. Yeah, or banana I syrup or that. lemon syrup. Mm. Um, it's very like there's different colors, which are mm-hmm. you know, one, one's called a uh, dead leaf, and I believe Ooh. that's mint and pomegranate syrup, which makes it turn brown. Oh, lordy! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I often see, I often see in films people consuming pastis like on a very hot day. Is it very refreshing? Yeah. Um, it is, um, you know, and it's also one of those things that you can linger over in a cafe. Mm. You know, when you're in a French cafe, they don't give you the check. You have to ask for it. It's right. considered rude. So people want to sit there all day with one drink, and they do, and they sit there with a glass of pastis, and they keep adding water to it. So, so that's a that's a good one if you're on a budget. Yeah, it appeals to, you know, the French are pretty thrifty, so mm-hmm. it appeals to that side of them, too. Okay. Let me ask you about vermouth, because I think, particularly in the United States, there's a huge misunderstanding about what is vermouth, how do you use it? You make mention of, you know, your mother kept a bottle to, to yeah. deglaze a chicken pan, which a lot of my friends, that's how they use vermouth. Um, but it's it's a 
very interesting drink that crops up in a number of your cocktails. Well, it's it's one th- for one thing. It's very easy to get in America. And when I was doing mm-hmm. writing, drinking French, I wanted people to be able to make the recipes. So right. I really tried to keep everything, you know, three, four, maybe five ingredients. Right. You know, and vermouth is just you know you can buy it in the American supermarket. You can go into Safeway or whatever supermarket near you know. And there's if mm-hmm. your state sells liquor, and you yeah. can find pretty good vermouth, um, and so. You know, and it's such an iconic French drink. That said, it's actually invented in Italy. Um, mm-hmm. And that said, it was actually, they think it was invented in Greece, like hundreds of oh years ago. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So, <laughs> yeah. But what but, is it exactly? Um, it's basically an aromatized wine. Uh-huh. So it's wine that has botanicals in it, usually wormwood. Vermouth is a, um, is a vermouth is the German word, I believe, for mm-hmm. wormwood. So wormwood right. is a herb. It's what they use in absinthe as well. Um, but it usually has wormwood in it, maybe has quinine, citrus, cocoa peel, cocoa bean peels, um, whatever, you know, uh, angelica, seeds, uh, different kinds of vermouth. And mm-hmm. like I said, it was sort of popularized in Italy, but the, for a while, part of France was Italy. It was under the dukedom of Italy. And that part of France started making vermouth. At the time, it was Italy. And it's called a Chambéry, that region now. And it's under f- French rule, of course, for a couple hundred years. Um, so French vermouth is a lighter style. It's usually white dry vermouth, whereas Italian vermouth is red and a little sweeter because mm-hmm. it has caramel in it. It's not red because it has red wine in it. It's red oh. because of the caramel. I see. And so it's the red that you would put in most of the time in, in the um, in the cocktails, whereas the white... Uh, it depends. Well, the white goes in a martini, doesn't it? Yeah, in a martini. Um, there's uh, like a white Negroni has white vermouth in it. Right. There's a drink called the El Diablo that has white vermouth in it. Um, mm-hmm. And both are good. And both are, you know, wonderful just drinks with ice over them, you know, low alcohol, ABV, uh, low ABV, uh, you know, afternoon drinks. Uh-huh. Um, and they're refreshing and they're, if you don't want wine or beer, they're sort of, some of them are on the, you know, like you mentioned, you like sweeter things, not mm-hmm. too acid. So, you know, you have this juicy, fruity vermouth that has a sort of a quinine uh, wormwood, you know, a little bitterness uh-huh. underneath it. And it usually works perfectly. Right. And and what about um I hope I can, I'm pronouncing this correctly, Gentian? Mm-hmm. What is what is that and how is it how does it appear in the, in a bottle? Uh well gentian is a very Gen- long root. Gentian uh-huh. or gentian Gen- in French. <laughs> it's a long root. <laughs> Usually they're at least 10 years old and some are 40 years old or 50 years old. Um and it's very very bitter. There's mm-hmm. a famous liquor called Suze which um, not everybody can drink because it's so bitter. I love it. Um, it's popular with French grandmothers. If you mention gentian, everyone says, oh, my grandmother has some of that in her liquor cabinet. Um, and for some why, reason, why is it so popular with the grandmothers? I think, you know, my take is it's something you sip. Um, ah. and the French also have, sorry, this is probably not, well, I won't go down that. The French also have this sort of self-flagellation thing, like mm. you want to suffer. 
<laughs> so, so you, you know, when you drink this stuff, it's hard to drink. Um, you put it over ice, but it's delicious. I love it. Um, uh-huh. But you have to sip it. You can't swill it. Swill it. You can't. So it's, it's also like take a slug. Yeah, it's economical, um, uh-huh. but it, it's also refreshing as well. So. Um, and I think a lot of these, um, like Sue's and Pasties, um, we're we're kind of familiar with the bottle shape and the mm-hmm. and the branding because of those wonderful advertising posters. Yes. Uh, well, there was like beer B Y R R H is an wasn't a pot was it was like the number one aperitif in the world, and the two brothers that founded it they sponsored a contest you know back in like the twenties I believe it was, um, but. I'd have to fact check that date, but mm-hmm. they fact check they they got like two thousand artists to do posters, and then they gave some of them you know they gave a award a cash prize to one of them. So they had, there's all these amazing posters, you know, Cubist and Art Nouveau and Art Deco and just oh, amazing nice. posters from that era. Dubonnet, um, just it was an amazing period, and they're they're iconic. You see them today; everybody knows those posters. And where does Dubonnet come from? I think that's like everybody's first drink when they're, you know, in their late teens. You know, um, Dubonnet. You given I, a Dubonnet with ice. I actually don't know where it was founded oh. because, interestingly, it's very hard to get it in France. Um, Never. Really? Yeah, people don't drink it here. It took me a oh. while to find a bottle. Um, in America, it's owned by a whiskey company and they Uh have no connection with the French company and they've redesigned the bottle and now they, they make a new version of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But people know Dubonnet here, but you can't find it anywhere. You'd never, I mean, it's, it's pretty much disappeared. That's so, so surprising. What was funny was when I was doing research online, I found these old Farrah Fawcett and Tom Selleck ads on YouTube that me. <laughs> they had done for they were and they were a little sexist. Um, it was something like you know, is this an old lady drink, and then Farrah Fawcett comes out or something, and uh-huh. you know, it's it was, but it was funny. I mean, just really like wow, that you know, this is something to see these two you know legends together. Wow, yes, yeah, very sexy. Yeah, interesting. The other surprise in your in your book was that the French are so like fanatic about rum, which I don't think of at all as a French mm-hmm. drink. Where does that enthusiasm come from, and and how do you how do the French like to consume rum? Well, you know, their colonial history is mm-hmm. you know draws those connections. Um, interestingly, like French people normally don't like strong alcohol, um, but even in the supermarket, you can buy like high proof rums, like really high proof. Mm-hmm. Um, some like, you know, just 150. I'm like, who drinks these? And I was talking to a rum shop here in Paris and he goes, Oh, people go to the islands for vacations and they come back and they want rum. Like, right. but do they want like 150 proof rum? <laughs> he goes, yes. Um, but it's fascinating. You know, French people love that feeling of exoticism. I think, you know, it's maybe in a way Americans, we all, a lot of us go to Mexico for vacation Right. So we've adopted a lot of the Mexican culture, you know, the food and the beverages, especially. Mm-hmm. And the French did that with rum. And the the very very high proof rum. My my cousin is a distiller, and she's uh-huh. making a, a high proof clear rum mm-hmm. that's 
packs quite a punch. Um, and it, but it makes fantastic cocktails. I mean, you can just it just sings in the glass. Well, one thing I learned um, from a bartender in Brooklyn, actually, and he said, you know, he was showing me how to be a bartender because I wanted to learn how to bartend. Uh-huh. And he goes, you know, the higher the proof alcohol, the more it comes through in the drink because you're diluting it. That's why you shake or stir a cocktail or you mix it with vermouth. Um, so for like a Manhattan, he would, we tasted the difference between like 80 proof versus a hundred proof. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh wow, this really is a, <laughs> really is a difference. And not because, you know, you get hammered, but because, um, the flavor comes through. The flavor so. comes right through. Let's get back to cocktails for a minute because you, you mentioned earlier that, um, the French weren't really into cocktails. Mm-hmm. What accounts for that sudden flourishing? Of, of the cocktail bar scene in France, do you think? Um, I think it was a couple of things. One of one, The main one was it was a new generation. You had these young people uh-huh. that were looking outside of France. Um, they were, you know, they, there was much stronger influences from the U.S., um, from Australia. People were starting to look at coffee shops, you know, that kind of culture. You know, we started getting kale. You know, everyone's like kale, kale and avocado <laughs> toast. You know, those became things in France. But, you know, before that, there was a group of young people and called the Experimental Cocktail Club. And they opened this club, uh, cocktail bar, I should say, and they started making cocktails. Uh-huh. And then, um, you know, not everybody would go out and get a cocktail, but all of a sudden you could get good cocktails. And there was buzz. Uh, uh-huh. And people were looking, like young people were looking for something new. Um, uh uh-huh. And they were traveling more and listening to American music and so forth. But then what happened was um, they also started discovering all these French liquors that, that you know, chartreuse, um, you know, Citadel gin, cognac. Um, it was like, oh, we have all these spirits here. Let's start making these cocktails and let's use them. And then the, the, um, a group, um, four people, <laughs> and I think mm-hmm. now it's three, um, they opened a bar called Candelaria, mm-hmm. and they were serving Mexican food. They had a little Mexican cafe, then there was a white door in the back, and you walked through, and there was an amazing cocktail bar. And the tacos were amazing, too. So a lot of the expats started going there because we were all like, oh, my God, tacos. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, don't you want French food? I'm like, well, we eat that like Enough every day. Already. It's like, I want a taco. So, uh-huh. um so that actually helped, you know, and then blogs started writing about France as being this new place to go, have Mexican food and drinks, cocktails. Um, and more and more people started opening cocktail bars and uh-huh. it just took off. Right. But it, uh, just to get back to what you're saying, you, um, that the people were sort of discovering the dusty bottles behind the bar. Mm-hmm. So so those aperitifs had been consumed sort of on their own or watered down, and now they're being incorporated into mixed drinks is what you're saying. Right. Like yeah, Berlin, that's fascinating. Vermouth. You know, people, if you go to a bar, you know, a cafe, they always have like martini and Rossi. And uh-huh. that, that's why, you know, Americans come and they order a martini and they get served a glass of vermouth and they're like, yes. uh, <laughs> I didn't order that. Right. Um, <clears throat> but then, you know, now there's these uh, brands like Dolan Vermouth that people have discovered made in Chambéry and it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so these bartenders are using things like Chartreuse, um, you know, different, there's a bar that just, a couple of bars here that actually only have French liquor at them. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them's featured in the book, uh, Galopin. And it's wonderful. And I went with a friend and he ordered a margarita. They're like, um, 
it's like we don't have tequila oh no wow and it's a fascinating it's a fascinating development because i think of france is very conservative on the on the food and drink side but it sounds like there's a great deal of innovation going on at the minute well there's both you know there's it's also a generational thing Mm. you know my partner who is you know a few years younger than me like four years younger not a lot um i'm 61 you know, when he, when I started making cocktails, he was like, these are good. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Thanks. And he said, well, you know, I always thought cocktails were bad because they had a bad, yeah. you know, if you went to a, a cafe and had a cocktail, it was always like purple and it was just, right. you know, not good. It was like violet syrup and bad rum or something and, mm-hmm. you know, or like watery mojitos. Um, and now, oh. you know, he just, he was like, these are great. And now we go to bars and he's like, I love this. <laughs> right. And the spritzes, um, you, yeah. you have, you have a wonderful passage in the book where you, you're in Italy and you say to the waiter that you want one of those orange drinks that everyone, which is exactly <laughs> how I discovered the spritz. I was sitting in Rome. I I like, Can I have one of those orange drinks, please? <laughs> yeah. It's like, I want and, that. Yeah. I want that. <laughs> which, and also I like the way, um, in the book as well, you, you say, you know, I get on a bar stool and I say to the barman, well, what do you, you know, make me something. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very liberating for if you don't know much about the culture or the, the dusty mm-hmm. bottles behind the bar to, to, you know, put yourself in the hands of a good mixologist. Well, I learned the value of a good bartender. There was a fellow, Carlos Madrid, Madrid who, um, and he's in the book. He made me this this cocktail called um, the Toronto. And I went into the bar he was working at, and I didn't know him. And he came over, and he stood in front of me, and he said, what would you like? And I said, something brown and up and bitter. Uh-huh. And he sort of asked me a few questions. And he came back with this glass with something brown in it. And it just looked like some brown liquid. Whatever was in that glass, I was like, whoa, this is great. This is exactly what I want. Uh-huh. And what was it? It's called a Toronto, and it's made uh-huh. with rye whiskey because that's Canadian, of course, uh-huh. and some um, some Fernet Branca to mm. give it some bitterness. Mm. Um, and it was so good, and that that sort of kicked me off. And it was funny because I, I photographed him for the book. I said, I, "Can you do you mind being in my book?" And he goes, "Why do you want me in the book?" To your book. <laughs> and so I was trying to explain it to him in French. I was like, well, you're this guy. And he was so surprised that he did that. But that's why I said, like, these, to me, these people are sort of gods. Um, yeah. But a good bartender is like that. Um, they, they make you feel at home. They make, you know, yeah. their job is to welcome you to their mm-hmm. bar. Or, you know, if it's not their bar, you're, you're there to have a drink. And you should also respect them as well. It's a right. two way street. But they're there to serve you and to help you have a good time. And they, you know, a good bartender will want to make you a good drink. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lived in Moscow for a time and there was oh. a wonderful cocktail bar. It was sort of a restaurant and cocktail bar, but they did not have a menu. So mm-hmm. you had to say to the bartender, like, I want something with gin that's a little yeah. fruity. And then they would go and bring you something. And it was, you know, you had to put yourself in the hands, but. <laughs> well, if they're it good, was, it works. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I always say um, to people, don't order a drink if the bartender doesn't know it. If right. you say, I want a Toronto, and they go, what is that? Oh, it's okay. I don't want that. 
<laughs> yes, because there's a, there's a sort of bombastic uh, stereotype of American who says, let me teach you how to make a daiquiri, young man. You know, uh, that's, no. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but you also um, feature some food in the book. Um, and I've actually bookmarked a bunch of uh, pages of your book, um, including some of the wonderful food um, items. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, what kind of food goes well with aperitifs and, and you know, how does, how does that um, kind of marry itself? Uh, you make a, an extraordinary claim in the book that um, the French don't consume wine and cheese together, which I think for Americans is just, you know, gobsmackingly <laughs> shocking. Well, somebody left a comment on my um, Instagram the other day and she said, like, it just blows my mind in France that they eat cheese after dinner. And I didn't, I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and they kind of invented cheese, you know, I, mean, I don't know if they invented cheese. They know, right? But they perfected it for sure, yeah. Um, it's just like, you know, it's a cultural difference. Mm-hmm. Um, we're so used, I'm so used to eating cheese after dinner that um, it makes sense. You know, that mm-hmm. said there, you know, you can eat, sometimes people will put out like just chunks of Parmesan for an apéro mm-hmm. or chunks of Conte cheese. Um, or Gruyere, that kind of cheese, or goat cheese. Um, but like, you know, the cheese board, you'd never have before a meal. Cause before a meal. If you think about it, it's like, well, why would you eat all this rich food before you're eating dinner? Mm-hmm. So. So, but what do you eat before dinner? Then? Whatever I can. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I haven't adjusted to, I've been here 20 years, is eating late. So I'm mm. I'm American. I think we're all... You know, it's like six o'clock. We start thinking about dinner. We kind of want to eat by seven. Right. So eating at eight, eight thirty, or nine, I start snacking. So mm-hmm. you know, my I've been eating you know chocolate and butter all day. So it's time to turn to salt. Uh-huh. So you know, an apéro in France could be potato chips. It could be pretzels. It could be salted nuts, or it could be something more elaborate like gougere, mm-hmm. You know, cheese puffs that I have in the book. Something salty, though. Generally. Mm-hmm. The French don't eat sweet stuff with um, aperitifs. Mm-hmm. Now, we are recording this in the time of the coronavirus. So um, both of us are kind of holed up at, at home, as is the rest of the world. And a lot of people are turning to um, on virtual happy hours and, mm-hmm. and online cocktail parties. Um, I have a group of friends we meet each Friday evening. What is the secret to a great online cocktail party, David? Um, well, I've only had one. Um, oh, I'm having okay. another one tomorrow. I had a one-on-one with a friend, and we were both kind of stunned because um, uh-huh. she has a business here, and her business, you know, it's all tourism. Oh, and so her whole company is down the tubes, you know, after you know, oh. 15 years. But France has a much has a good social system. And mm-hmm. they said no business will go bankrupt, and we're going to take care of people's salaries. Oh wow! Um, I don't know. Well, I don't know how that's going to work, but um, so that's so be it. Um, so we're having one um, on Wednesday night. So this week. So I think you know, for me, it's always stressful because the challenge of getting those things set up. Yeah, uh, online. It's always like, oh my god, technology. I have to. Like, <laughs> there's always a learning curve. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> But what do you recommend in terms of the menu? Uh, well, you know, if you're having, if it's, if you're doing it virtually, uh-huh. I think you can do whatever you want. Um, right. My take is to have something light, like not a heavy cocktail. Mm-hmm. However, I'm kind of leaning toward having a martini tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to drink a lot of martinis, and I don't drink them so much anymore. But 
um, every like six months, I want a really good martini. So well, and it's it, once you have a really good martini, you don't really want to have anything else. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of like you don't want to screw the palate. That's how I find it. Well, also, I can't drink more than one martini. Any, I used to drink. <laughs> I used to drink like three or four when I was younger. Uh-huh. Um, it was funny watching Mad Men, you know, those old days. Oh. People would sit down, they'd have like a couple martinis. Mm-hmm. And that was reality. It wasn't, you know. That was were, lunch. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, how did they go back to work? And a friend of mine worked in New York during that era. And he said, my job was to make sure the editor I worked for made it back to the office after Oh, my lunch. goodness. So he oh would sit goodness. there while she drank martinis. <laughs> the times have changed. Do, do you have a favorite cocktail in the book? Uh, the Boulevardier. The Boulevardier. Yeah, I put that, I made that the first cocktail in the book because I always think you should start off with a bang. Uh And that's my favorite cocktail. That's a good one. Um, But you also have a a drink named after you. Ah, yeah, I forgot. (laughs) Yeah, that's my favorite name, the Leibovitz. Yeah, it's a great name. (laughs) Yeah, I was in the Bahamas with a friend and I was drinking, I was just, we were drinking a lot because we were on vacation and, you know, we were younger 20 years ago or 15 years ago. And um, I don't recommend drinking a lot, but, um, and I just kind of got burnt out drinking, you know, you were near the tropics. So I was like, can I get a champagne and pineapple juice? And everyone Uh kind of looked at me. I was like, what? (laughs) it's a great so he called it the Leibovitz Isle and it stuck so okay it's fantastic um so what is the next great Leibovitz journey um where are we going with you next are you working on another book uh no everyone's like which which book is this is it your I'm like it's my last um oh (laughs) well I that's a news that's that's breaking news well everybody says that when they have a book um right Everyone's because it's funny when you write a book and you go on book tour. Everyone's like, "What's your next book?" It's like, "Yeah, I just can I enjoy this moment?" Because <laughs> right. yeah, like this book took me two years. You know, a book takes two years usually yeah. from start to finish. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I kind of went off on a different subject on this book because I was so fascinated by it, and I always have to be fascinated by my subject. You know, I wrote a book about my life in Paris cooking. Uh-huh. Um, you know, called My Paris Kitchen. I wrote, you know, The Perfect Scoop. I was really into ice cream and I still am. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what else there is to say. You should write a book when you have something to say. And I don't know what's next. So if you have any ideas, let me know. Well, I think the whole world is into sourdough bread baking at the moment. I mean, I, I went yeah. for my weekly adventure to the stop and shop and there there's no flour left in our town um and every from instagram and facebook everybody's making sourdough starter so well i went into the i was going to make focaccia you know the thing Uh is people ask me about making bread and i'm like you know i live in france and yeah why would five bakeries a block away and they're good um and to me bread you know i know people make really good bread at home but a lot of it's about the oven and i've never Mm. been able to get um, that same crackly crust, like a baguette. Everyone's like, I want to make a baguette at home. I'm like, you know, yeah. it's not something you make at home. Let them do it. Um, it's like French fries. Like, go to the restaurant where they have the deep fryer, and you know they're going to be really good. Mm-hmm. You really don't want to heat up like two quarts of oil in your apartment. Yeah. It's going to smell. Um, so I'm, I'm it really into having somebody else make my bread. Um, and, you know, I've always wanted to write a candy book, but there's too many variables. Um, you huh. know, the weather, the ingredients, mm. um, the temperatures. 
Um, plus, I write in metrics and standard, you know, U.S. measurements. Uh-huh. And I was like, I don't know if I could keep. It's like writing two books because it's so much fact. You know, you have to make sure that you know you don't make a mistake. Right. Um, and what are you making though while you're holed up in your Paris kitchen? Um, well, I'm kind of making stuff. It's kind of interesting because I did a post right after this whole thing started um, about you know things you can make with not a lot of ingredients. Uh huh. And I never had a post go viral like that since, you know, <laughs> literally since like 2007 when there was, you know, 16 blogs. Um, and now there's a lot and it just, you know, it's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am trying to make things with stuff I have or stuff that's easy to get because mm-hmm. I can't, you know, reading the room, if I do like, you know, some recipe that has, you know, like braised veal shanks with, yeah, nobody can get though, you know. Right. Um, you know, it's just, you have to read the room and I'm, you know, I did like a kitchen sink cookies the other day. I'm doing uh pasta bolognese. Oh, which, wonderful. You know, you rely, I did cabbage soup the other day, mm-hmm. you know, cause I, I was like, I was like everybody, you know, from what I hear in America with people, they go to the supermarket, they run to the toilet paper aisle. They probably run to get all this other stuff. I'm sure That's nobody's right. like racing toward the cabbages. Possibly not. But, Possibly yeah. not. <laughs> but you're right. Cause it's, um, um, you know, the, the hard to find ingredients are going to be difficult to source for some time. So we will be going into our pantries and pulling out the staples. Um, so everybody should tune into David Leibowitz's blog to make sure that um, they keep things interesting in, in your own kitchen. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing a daily happy hour. You know, it, ah. it's one thing that's interesting, someone said, well, the most searched subjects right now are cocktails and comfort foods. Um, there you go. And I thought, well, you know, I should <laughs> use this. And, you know, on Instagram, you can do these live things. It's very easy. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do like a nightly cocktail. There um, you go. And cocktails are great because I've always been cooking in front of the public. And you have to stand there and measure and weigh and then put it in the oven and wait. And I was like, this is great. I just pour everything in a glass and then pour it, you know, in my mouth. And, and consume. <laughs> yeah. And, I can, and it's also a great chance to talk to people about all these French liquors Mm-hmm. Um, without, you know, trying to be, you know, like a school mom, but say this, this is like vermouth, like, and so I'm reaching this whole audience and it's, it's great. I love it. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I, I do, I highly recommend that everybody get their hands on a copy of Drinking French, which has to be the best way to get through the COVID-19 lockdown. Yes. Um, I was afraid that's kind of all we have time for today, David. But before we go, how can people find you on Instagram and Facebook and your website? Um, can you give us all the particulars? Sure. I'm uh, David Leibovitz with a V. <laughs> dot mm-hmm. uh, com. That's my blog, and on social media, Instagram, I'm on David David Leibovitz. Facebook, David Leibovitz. Um, I think even if you spell my name wrong, you'll get me because it's not mm-hmm. like my name is like Bill Smith, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on Instagram and Facebook, uh, Twitter, and my blog. My blog is my the center of everything. So it's the hub. It's my little home. That's fantastic. And it's a fantastic blog, which I I think everybody um, who's into the whole food scene knows and loves 
so much. And we want to wish you the best with Drinking French and remind listeners that it's available wherever great books are sold. And that includes many independent booksellers who are offering ordering and delivery service during the COVID-19 crisis. My thanks to David Leibowitz. Um, David, it's been great having you on the channel. Oh, thanks. It was super to talk to you, Jennifer. Super to talk to you too. (laughs) Uh, And thanks to you for listening and join me soon for another deep dive into a new book with its authors. Stay safe, stay well. Bye-bye.